0: Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout.
1: Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, one of your three hosts. Uh, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer are with me, the other two.
0: Hey. Hey, you guys. Fair warning to all, there's noise happening at all three locations. We're all, not, <laughs> None of us are in the same place, but there is extremely loud noise at all the places. You know, something something new for, for the audience that uh, should be exciting. Who's on the show this week?
2: Uh, this week, our guest is Mitchell Jackson. Uh, Mitchell... As many of our listeners will be aware, won both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Magazine Award for Feature Writing this year uh, for his story in Runner's World that's called 12 Minutes in a Life. It's about the killing of Ahmad Arbery, but uh, more than that, it's about the life of Ahmad Arbery. It's about the history of running. And if you haven't read the story, I would say give this show a pause, go read that story, and then come back. Um, it's, a, it's truly an incredible story. Mitchell also wrote a very uh, inventive and brilliant nonfiction account of his own life growing up in Portland, Oregon, called Survival Math. He's a prize-winning novelist. He teaches English at Arizona State University. And I really enjoyed talking to
0: him. I'm so excited for this one. It's, uh, that piece is incredible. But Aaron, I feel like I also have to share this with you. I saw Evan on the street just after he did this interview and he was running to an errand and I was like, Evan, how to go. And as he was running, he turned around and gave me the double thumbs up. Wow. That is like, the, yeah. that is the highest praise I ever for. I should also know for people who are listening at home that we are introducing the long form podcast. I'm on a video call with Evan and he's wearing a long form t-shirt. This is the kind of spirit that I love.
2: <laughs> just, I'm just a real <laughs> supporter. Levels of Ratliffian enthusiasm, the likes of which we've never
0: seen. If you want any more of those T-shirts, there's about 50 of them in my basement, by the way. <laughs> but I'm, I, but if don't write in asking for one because I, it's too hard to mail them. I can't handle it.
2: Let me just add one more thing about the uh, the interview. There's an article that comes up in the interview that Mitchell wrote recently for the New York Times Magazine travel issue, I believe, that was about gathering with friends from his childhood, uh, a group of friends that call themselves the 833 Crew. So you'll hear 833 referenced. Uh, and uh, one fun fact for you NBA heads, Max and Aaron, another member of the 833 crew, Damon Stoudemire. Oh.
0: Wow. Tie in. We are, uh, we are brought to you in partnership with uh, Vox. They help us make this show. It's a, it's a new thing, and it's so far been great. So thanks to everyone over at Vox. Now here's Evan with Mitchell Jackson.
2: Mitchell, welcome to the Long Form Podcast.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: I appreciate you coming on. We are currently at the beginning of the murder trial of the three men accused of murdering uh, Ahmad Arbery. So I wanted to start with your Runner's World story and work backwards from there in time a little bit. First, maybe, could you tell me a little bit about the origins of that story for you, sort of how it came about? Yeah.
3: Well, I was... um... I was on a fellowship at the New York Public Library 2019 was it in the 2020 um well during the pandemic we got cut short by the pandemic and I was researching a novel project and once I was started sheltering um so early like March I decided that I wanted to um I wanted to write a a novella length prologue I had I had read um Don DeLillo's Pathco at the Wall and just was enamored by it and was like, okay, I'm going to do this. So I decided to dedicate my sheltering pandemic time to working on this novel or this, this, this opening. And so I did it. I was putting in like 12 hour days. I didn't leave my apartment. I was really sheltering, not like other people like going out and coming back in. I stayed in the apartment. Anyway, so must have been a few weeks after the tape surfaced. I don't really have a writing project in front of me. What am I going to do? And I picked up my phone and I had an email or a text from a guy named Ryan D'Agostino who works at Hearst. And he was like, man, I think I got an idea for you. You know, give me a call. So I called him and he was like, hey, what do you think about writing about Ahmaud Arbery for Runner's World? And I paid attention, not like that much attention, but I knew enough to know that the tape had surfaced and I was outraged and I, and, and But the timing of it was like, I was looking for something to really keep my mind off of doing something else, but also something do something that mattered. And so that's, I took on the project from Ryan.
2: And when you, I guess, sat down or connected with an editor at Runner's World, did you already have in your mind when you started kind of what you wanted to do with the piece or did it develop through the conversations that you had?
3: Yeah. Well, my first question was, do I have to travel because I was sheltering? He was like, no, you don't have to. And then I was fearful because I didn't know how to write a profile or a long form piece without going to the place. I had never done that before.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but uh, the reason why I mentioned that the novel work is because that the, the prologue is a story within a story. It's about the 1965 Watts Revolt which started from a car stop. So that structure was in my head when I started the Arbery piece. So what the journalists call a TikTok was to me a, a story within a story. And I came to that really early on. Um, also because the New York Times had a video journalism piece on the what happened. And it was like a time clock. Uh, and it went it like showed you inside of the house and... Showed you the route that uh, Ma took and, and that's how I knew the time frame too. So once I saw that video and then I already had that structure in my head, I was like, okay, this is it.
2: And there's sort of, there ends up being sort of four strands in the story. There's, there's his story of who he was. There's the mm-hmm. TikTok, if you want to call it that, of the crime. And then there's uh, the history of Brunswick, Georgia. Yeah, And then there's the history of running. And running as a sport. How did that develop that you wanted to provide those other layers of context and how did you weave them together?
3: Well, I knew that I wanted the history of running because I was writing for Runner's World and also because one of the things I'm committed to is writing about home. So once I started doing a little preliminary research and found out that running came out of Oregon, that was all I needed. So you know, it allowed me to do the thing that I am committed to doing. Obviously, the the, the TikTok I, I I didn't want people to look away. I knew some people wouldn't watch the video, you know, rightfully so. So I want, but I wanted them to know what these men did—that they hunted this man and lynched him. Um, so it was really important to get those details, and also because it was creative nonfiction rather than journalism, like I could try to get in my head, like what might he have been thinking during this chase? That was really important to me. The thing that I didn't know that I was going to write about necessarily was the history of Brunswick. But the more I started talking to people and just thinking about how much racism is tacit, that really made me committed to, to also kind of framing You know, because how can we not frame what happened to Ma outside of racism? And then clearly, you know, trying to show who he was, because I think every time a human is murdered, they immediately just become that murder. We get all the details of George Floyd's murder, but we don't necessarily get people writing about, well, who was he before this? And, you know, what was his daughter like and his friends? And I I was really, really committed to that.
2: And then you had to reach out to, you know his family members and friends that he grew up with, yeah, and you know in some of these cases, it could be that they're they're inundated with national press constantly who want them to come on and talk about this, and then in other cases they're they're weirdly overlooked, and people don't actually go get their stories and what What was the situation here? How did you make that approach
3: so when they reached out to me, uh it was two editors, Leah Flickinger and Ryan. they had already talked to. Uh, Mod's coach, an old coach, Jason. Jason was the coach that started the run with Mod. And so he was already willing to talk to them. And so I thought, well, maybe Jason can connect me to some people. So I called Jason. We got on the phone and he was actually driving. So I was asking him questions and he had someone in the car with him who kept helping him answer questions. And then finally I was like, well, who is this? And it was Keem, Hakeem, who is Ahmad's best friend, was in the car when I talked to Jason. And so then I said, Well, Keem, can I talk to you later? He's like, Oh, sure, man, let's make a time. Then I got on the phone with Keem. And then Keem would tell me some stories and he would say, Yeah, you know, we were with Jasmine. And I'll say, Well, who's Jasmine? say, Oh, and this is my sister. I'd say, Well, can you connect me to her? yeah, man, sure. Let me let me check it out. And then I get on the phone with Jasmine and Jasmine will say, well, it was such and such. So that's really how it happened was one close family member or friend connecting me to the other. So I'm very, very thankful to them because it could have just been like, no, I'll talk to you. But like, that's where this stops. But every single person I talked to was willing to connect me to someone else. And how
2: did those conversations go? I mean, these are people who are I mean the killing was in what February and then the take came out in May and then these people are still grieving. Yeah, this is June, yeah. But also they've they've suffered this incredible injustice on top of grieving and so what how did you prepare to speak to them or did you, and how did you deal with those factors?
3: Yeah, well, first telling them like the obvious that you know I understand that you're grieving. Also, I was trying to explain to them my objective was not to write about necessarily Maude being murdered, but about how Mod lived, and really trying to figure out who he was as a person, and and just also trying to find touchstones that we we shared. You know, like I would tell them a little bit about my story, and um, so yeah, that it was strange because the last person that I interviewed was Mod's older brother, Buck. And uh, I remember my partner was in the, maybe she was in the living room while I was talking, but I had the speakerphone on so I could record. And at the end of the conversation, Buck and I were like laughing and telling jokes to each other. And I got off the phone and she was like, who is that? Like, And I was like, oh, that was my brother. She was like, it sounded like y'all known each other for like 15 years. It was just so natural. Um, and that's, I really got a good feeling. From everyone I talked to about you know they were just generous and kind and 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 strong too, right, because they were going through this grieving process and were still willing to talk about the thing that was making them grieve,
2: yeah, and the details i mean some of the details in the story, did you find that they they wanted to share those details because they wanted to say who this person was in their lives outside of the crime?
3: Mm, I think they had a comfort with me that I was not trying to exploit my story. And so when we started chatting, it was it felt like I was talking to a friend rather than I was interviewing someone. Um, and, you know, we were laughing about some of the stories and and I and I, would you know, push them a little bit for details. And they were always very forthcoming. coming. And even in cases like follow ups, like I would they everyone was like, well, if you need more, just text me. You know, so, uh, hey, was it five candles on the cake or was it two or was it chocolate cake? Or, and they were always willing to to give me the information I needed. Um, But it, I think also I might not have pushed for that level of detail if I didn't know that that's really what I was trying to do was like show who he was. Um, So, yeah, so so I think it was in tandem, my objective plus their willing willingness. There's a couple moments. I mean, there's one moment
2: in particular that. You say, basically, readers, people reading this, you break the fourth wall, essentially, and you say, I invite you to ask yourself, you know, what is a runner's world? Like, who runs? Who gets to run? Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in who who are you imagining as the, as the readership when you're writing those lines?
3: Um, people that don't look like me. Uh, no, I mean, I imagine, like, when I think of a runner a jogger, someone whose identity is connected to that. I think of someone who has resources and time and enough education to know that that's an important decision for their physical health. So we're talking about middle to upper class people who are joggers. Like you're not going to see no poor people jogging in the hood unless they're boxing or you know, like for a sport but just recreational joggers. So it's a way of inviting them to kind of step outside of themselves and analyze just the privilege that they have just by being able to run. Um, but yeah, I I actually didn't even look at the demographics of runner's world. Um, I just imagined, you know, like, I mean, I've done enough uh, empirical research in different neighborhoods <laughs> <laughs> to know that uh, there ain't a lot of joggers in the hood. <laughs>
2: But the other, the other moment I wanted to ask you about is, is the moment where it sort of builds to the point where you describe it as a lynching Mm -hmm. and you describe other police related killings as lynchings. And first I'm, I'm interested in if you got any pushback on that. Like, I feel like if it was the, if it was the New York times, uh, or the wall street journal or something, I imagine editor pushback on that. And I'm wondering if you did get any.
3: I didn't get any pushback. I don't remember if I did, I I didn't. And it was also one of those things I was pretty steadfast. And it's yeah, interesting you say that because I just did a story for the Times maybe last month and it was so much back and forth. I'm like, do we really got to call these people and ask them was the BO 625 or 623? <laughs> like, that important? <laughs> they, they serious.
2: This is where you the story where you met up with your old friends in Las Vegas, that story?
3: Yeah, they was looking at receipts. I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> he like, they don't have no chicken wings on it. It was barbecue. I'm like, okay, all right.
2: <laughs> they are serious. But even from a uh I think there's a certain type of, of media outlet that would say, well. The trial hasn't happened. Yeah, yeah. This hasn't been established as that. Whereas yeah, I think a lot of ordinary people would look at it and say, this looks like a lynching. And your choice to write that, I assume you had decided that from the beginning.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't decide it from the beginning. I And I think had I called it a murder, there probably would have been more pushback because now we're getting into the like... Hard legality of is it a murder? They haven't been convicted, but to call it a lynching, I think it's actually a kind of like it's not connected necessarily to law in the way I think that me calling it a murder or homicide or whatever would be, but also you know the body that came up with the rubric, the NA you know NAACP. I mean, if you look at that, it actually does fit it, right? So. I mean, I guess I could have kind of heads like it looks like a lynching, but but I, I was very happy that Leah didn't didn't strike that because also to me it gives a greater sense of like what actually happened, right? Like I think Ahmad's case was significant for how different it was from the other cases. Like it, there's, I mean, if a person dies. You know, it's a terrible thing. But to hunt a person, though, like he's running for his life for this many minutes. Like, I think that was just another level of malice. And I actually don't even think murder would cover that.
2: Yeah. But you didn't end it on that. That was the other thing Mm-mm. that I felt really made it powerful. Is Because that, that could be very naturally. That line could have been the end of the story. But you didn't. Yeah.
3: Well, you know, again, the objective of who is this person. So, you know, I had done all these interviews. I had all of these this anecdote, these anecdotes. I felt like I knew my... And, you know, when you're reporting, you're like, well, you got to cut something. And so I had cut everything. And I was like, I just don't want to get rid of all of this detail. And that's really... And I also really love lists. And I love napra. And so that's where I came up with the idea. Well, like, let me just make a long list of who this guy was and what I really want people to know about him before this thing ends. Um, yeah, and that was really important. And I think also because it was after the it was after the lynching that I could stop time in that moment too. Right, like the the, the forward mo- movement of the story was stopped there, so I could just take a pause and say, all right, here's who this guy was.
0: support for long form this week comes from listening if you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening it takes anything articles books pdfs and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant, and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a
2: there's a moment in the story where you say you wonder why he's dead and why you're alive yeah so i i wanted to kind of get at that maybe as a way of going back into your story a little bit um your book's called survival math and it just as a starting point mm. describe what that means and and sort of where that came from
3: so survival math um i'm from oregon portland oregon In my teens and early 20s, I was selling drugs. I guess the best way to describe it is like I was also a nice guy. So I think to be a successful drug dealer, you have to kind of commit to doing harm to people. And I hadn't made that commitment. And so I was, people were robbing me and, you know, trying to run up in my house and putting guns to my head and all these things. And so there was a time when. A guy I knew and some other, I don't know who was with him, but it was more than one person. Um, They tried to break into my house and uh, they didn't get in because a neighbor called the police on them. I didn't know it was him at the time, but then I went to my, I was calling my OG at the time and I told him what happened and he was like, oh yeah, man, they say that was Stitches trying to get in there. They they, they heard you had some kilograms in the house and some, some money and they was coming to get it. And I was like, okay. So now I'm like, okay, now I got a problem with this guy named Stitches, who was a gang member from the my neighborhood. And uh I just so happened to be coming out of a house really early in the morning, and I saw a guy on a bicycle riding towards me in all black. He had a skull cap on. And at the time now I'm carrying a pistol, but the gun is in my car, and I'm like fumbling for my keys. I don't know where my keys are. By the time The person gets close enough for me to realize that it's stitches. I'm at my car door, but I still don't have my keys. So he jumps off his bike, and he's like, "Hey man, I heard you was looking for me." And I kind of look around, and he pulls out his pistol and he points it at my chest, and he's like, "Yo, are you looking for me?" And I look down the street. I'm like, "Damn man, it's like six in the morning. Ain't nobody out here." I look the other way. Like, man, ain't nobody out here. I'm like, "Man, is he gonna shoot me?" Like. Is he gonna shoot me in my chest? Is he gonna shoot me in my head? Is he gonna shoot me in my leg? Like, can I survive this? And then I'm thinking, like, well, if I don't say nothing now, and I just let him go, like, if I get in my car, I got my pistol, so I can like ride down the street and shoot him. But if I don't kill him, is he, you know, is he gonna come to my mama house? He know where I live, all these things, and they're really happening in a split second. And then I say, No, I'm not looking for you. And Stitches. Uh, waves his gun. He's like, yeah, yeah, because I'm a real killer. I'm a real killer. And he puts his gun in his pants and he rides off. And years later, I was reflecting on that moment and the the calculations that I made between are you looking for me and my response, I'd say saved my life that day because Stitches turned out to be a convicted murderer twice or three times over. And so uh, that's where I got survival map from. The kind of on-the-spot calculations you make when you face a mortal threat. So, really, the part that uh, connected me to Maude was reading about him. He had come home from college, and uh, he he got he took a gun to uh, a basketball game, and someone saw it, and then they ended up arresting him for it. And so, I that video came out after the McMichaels were arrested. And so to me, it was a direct attempt to defame Ahmad and to say like, well, maybe he was—he deserved what happened to him. And for me, I was guilty of selling drugs. I i got caught with a gun. I went to prison and it was not lost on me that I hear I was a professor doing okay in the world and this young man was dead. And so I did it as a kind of shield against that kind of defamation of Ahmad, And then also to say like, Man, he has so many more possibilities.
2: And the uh, the underlying assumption there is that if you had been killed at that age uh, in that incident or some other incident and it became a story, people would have said, oh, he, he, he was selling drugs. He was asking for it. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah.
2: I want to ask you one, like, maybe two meta question here, which is mm-hmm. I've heard you tell that story. And I also have read you tell that story in your book and even in an excerpt of your book, I think, in Harper's of The New Yorker, but it's still, I'm still riveted to hear you tell the story out loud. Mm. And I'm wondering how you feel when you tell the story. You've you lived it. You've written it. You've been asked about it by people like me
3: many times. Yeah. How does it feel when you tell it? Man, when I tell it, it feels, it doesn't feel like being there. And nothing is going to ever uh, match actually experiencing it in the moment, but it is not. It's not lost on me, like, like going to prison. Sometimes I'm like, man, yeah, I was in prison. Like, that's it. it Almost like it never happened. But that moment and a couple of other moments, I'll never forget. Like, it's a present, and because I, because I know this guy, I know what he has done to other people. He did some crazy stuff to my brother. So, like. I realized that I was literally seconds away from n- not being here. Um, so, yeah, it, it really makes me, like it gives me advantage on this present moment that probably very few things in my life can do. Hmm. When did writing become an ambition for you? That is the thing that happened in prison. So I guess that makes prison most memorable is that I it was so crazy, man. I don't know if you know what waves are. Like my hair is like laid down right now. Mm-hmm. And in prison, we used, we had do-rags. Okay, yeah, so everybody knows what do-rag is. So do-rags were disallowed in prison. You know, people can hang themselves. or I guess they thought maybe there'd be a weapon. So they were contraband. But somehow I got a do-rag from the outside and I had a, a do-rag in prison. So someone caught me with my do-rag trying to lay my hair down. So I got put on restriction, which is like, I was in a medium security prison, so we didn't have a hole. So there, and I was in a dorm. So their version of the hole was you're on your bunk twenty hours out the day. Like all you could do is go down for meals, but otherwise you just gotta sit on your bunk. And I was like, Well, what the hell am I gonna do? And I was like, I know, I'll just start writing my life story. And that's really how it happened. If (laughs) if not for me getting caught with a do rag in prison, I probably never would have become a writer. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I don't think I ever said that before, because <laughs> I forgot about the do-rag part.
2: <laughs> what do you think gave you the impulse that you wanted to write down your life story?
3: Well, I think in prison, guys like to sensationalize their experience a lot. You know, I've been out here getting in shootouts and fighting, and that's that's a common kind of conversation you know, on the yard. And one thing that I I do remember about myself as a youngster is I would, always journal. So I would journal about whatever experience mainly connected to my mother and her addiction. And I forgot about it, but she actually kept some of those journals and showed them to me later. Oh, wow. So my impulse was not to sensationalize my life, but to make sense of, you know, my mother's experience, my brother's, what had happened to me at the point that I was in prison, um, I don't know if you read Residue Years but in Residue Years the my novel the the guy is trying to buy his old family home and when uh, when I went to prison I my 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 kind of plan for getting out of selling drugs was to start flipping houses right so I had bought a house with this white guy he was like he's been doing it a long time he was going to show me how to get into business and I had bought a house I had paid all cash to get it remodeled and then I get popped and I'm going to prison, and I don't want to make the note. So he's like, okay, Mitch, look, you you can sign it over to me, and I'll make the note, and then I'll sell it, and then we'll split the profits. And I'm like, okay, Terry, like, cool, cool. This, I don't got to make the note. Like, you know, I'm be like gone for a minute. So we get in there. I get out in a month or two. I call, I call Terry. I, I can't get him. You know, next month passed. I call Terry. I can't get him. Now I'm calling my girlfriend like, hey, like, can you call Terry and see what's up? She can't reach him. Terry disappears. Then the house gets sold. He was supposed to give me $1,000 a month while he had it in his possession. And then when he sold it, give me the money. So he gave me like one payment and then he didn't give me any more payments. So now I'm calling, looking after him. And then he sold the house and I never got my money. So that was heavy on me in prison because that was the money that I thought I was going to come out to in the world because I didn't have any more. So I was like, oh, there's going to be a lot more pressure on me to start selling drugs again because I'm broke when I get out of here. So that was also like, what am I going to do with my life was a part of the impetus for wanting to write too.
2: And you were in college when you got arrested, right?
3: Yeah, I was I was a junior at Portland State. Uh, I was on a scholarship and they held it for me. So that That worked out well, but I mean, I was supporting my mom at the time, you know, I was taking care of my little brothers and to to come home and and to like not just to not have money but to know that someone duped you out of the money that you were supposed to have, and you were trying to do something legal <laughs> like yeah, 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 it was crazy.
2: And so that first impulse, that first writing impulse was to tell your story. Yeah. Did that carry through as you got more in, more interested in writing that what you wanted to do was tell the stories from your own life?
3: Yeah. So the first impulse was to tell my story. The next thing was, you don't know how to do it. So that was the impulse to go to graduate school and to learn. I think a lot of people would just, like people from back home or all over really email me all the time like, I want to be like, I want to, I got this book I want to write. And, you know, and, and the first thing I tell him was like, well, have you read a book like the one that you want to write? And then I say, do you know of any writer's workshops in your area? Because I think people just think if you have a story, then of course you can write a book and yeah, you probably can, but it don't won't necessarily be good. And I was already, I was always interested in the craft. So Once I decided I want to tell my story, I'm like, oh, well, my story is actually not that. It's like not very interesting, right? Like guy from the hood, mom on drugs, goes to prison. Like that's basically half the dudes in my neighborhood have that exact story. So then I was like, well, what, how do I make this into something that's worthy of reading? And that's where it was like, okay, you need to go to school. And then I got to Portland State and I had a thesis and I was like, this ain't it. Like you still don't know what you're doing. And that's when I applied to go to NYU afterwards. And I finished that program and I looked at that thing. So I'm like, this ain't it. Uh now I'm out and I've gone to graduate school twice. So I can't get in another program, but I'm still not ready. So that's where I'm like taking workshops and going to different weekends and trying to find mentorship and and I bump into Gordon Lish. Uh, but yeah, so so I think that was the difference was I did have an impetus to write about me but then I married it very quickly to like wanting to learn craft.
2: Mhm. And you mentioned in there Gordon Lish and so I know that's part of your your story but tell us a little bit about what that relationship was
3: or is. Yeah, well it is nothing <laughs> but but uh all right, if I back all the way up, there's a guy in Portland, Oregon, a writer named Tom Spanbauer. He is a cult hero in Portland. He has a workshop that he taught. I don't know if he's still doing it, but he taught out in the basement of his home for maybe 30 years. Uh, His most famous protege is Chuck Palahniuk. So Chuck Palahniuk wrote Fight Club in this workshop. So I read a story. I used to work at the Oregonian stacking papers. So I would often read the paper And I read a story about Chuck Palahniuk who mentioned this Tom Spanbauer guy. Now, this is when I think I might be in Portland State in graduate school. So then I go to Tom and I'm like, hey, Tom, like, can I sit in on a class? And he's very generous. You had to pay to go, but he never made me pay. He would just let me sit in the class. So I sat in, sat in. And then I found out that what Tom was teaching, he called it dangerous writing. But what it was was. Gordon Lish's philosophies, kind of repackaged, because Tom was one of Gordon Lish's first students at Columbia. So I knew about Gordon Lish, and then when I was in New York all these years later. So this is probably 2001 when I'm in Tom Spanbauer's class. I moved to New York in 2002. 2008, I see that this place called the Center for Fiction is offering a workshop for of Gordon Lish. He's come back to teaching after. I think maybe a decade of not teaching. So I apply, I get in the class and the way Gordon teaches is he basically gives you a lecture for five hours. It's really remarkable because the dude is like probably 70 by the time I get to him. And he never even takes like a bathroom break. Like he just lectures for six hours, five hours. And then he says, all right, go home, use the principles I gave you and write a sentence. If I like your first, you can write two. If I like your second, you can write read three. But if I don't like your first one, that's it. And we come back the next class and people try to read a sentence and he's like, stop. And like, did you know that was trash? We get, well, why are you reading that shit in here? I'm gonna die soon and this is what you're reading in here. I remember him saying that to like the first person I was like, oh man, this is serious. And he got around to me he calls me Jackson. Jackson, read a sentence. I read my first sentence. He said, go on. I read my second sentence. He said, yeah, yeah. I read my third sentence. He said, stop. The first sentence was, she told me to hold it for safe key. The second sentence was, she told me to hold it and then she took it back. The third sentence was, rent money from under the mattress. And when I read that, he said, stop. He was like, Jackson, don't ever ask for anyone's sympathy on the page you hear me? Don't ever ask for anyone's sympathy. And then the next thing he said was the thing that set me free. He said, but I'll tell you one thing, Jackson, you got an ear. And once he said that, I was like, oh, wow. Like I can hear language different than other people. Like I can hear the word that I might not know the word, but when I see it, I know that this word goes with this word. So I really started to cultivate that. And he took an interest in me and started like, working with me on short stories but more importantly he would like call me in the middle of the night and say like Jackson i think you can be great you could go all the way stick with me i'll get you there and like send me postcards and he told me the thing that i could do that would set me apart and then he gave me the confidence wow and then after my first novel came out he just abandoned me he's like like the last time i talked to him on the phone I was at a birthday. I was at my birthday party actually with some with the guy that I was in that class with, and I was like, "Have you talked to Gordon?" And he was like, "Nah." He's like, "Well, let's call him." I was like, "All right, cool." So I called him. Hey, Gordon. He said, "Hello." I said, "Hey, it's it's Mitchell." He said, "Mitchell." I said, "Yeah, it's Mitchell Jackson." He said, "Mitchell Jackson." I said, "Yeah." He said, "Click," <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> what? So, Gordon is, he, I keep telling this story, but Gordon, he, I don't know. He, he ain't messing with me.
2: You don't have any, is there, has anyone told you, oh, I think it might be this? Or,
3: well, he has a history of cutting off students. Uh, some people say he has a history of cutting off students after they've like achieved some kind of success or he feels they don't need them anymore. I don't know the exact reason. I don't feel like I was successful when he cut I mean, I had a book, but like that was it. So I don't know the reason that he's not sharing it with me or hasn't shared it with me or anyone else I know of. But yeah, he he ain't answering the phone. For, I mean, he'll pick it up. But if I say Mitchell, that's it.
2: That's so strange.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But also he gave me something that just keeps giving. Yeah. Right. So like in a way, he's always with me. Literally, like I have the notes from his class. I revisit them. I'm always parodying something he told me in my own workshops. I I, I have one of those voicemails saved of him. You know, I think you can be great. So like, I didn't really lose him.
0: I can't even say it without laughing because like who would
2: have thought watch running sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how team milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course One of the things in your writing, and this is particularly in survival math, I feel like the honesty in your, in your telling of the story and the way you kind of turn the lens on yourself, Mm -hmm. uh, even when you're not writing about yourself, even when you're sometimes when you're doing a celebrity profile, you fold yourself into it. Like you'll, you'll pop up certain times. I'm thinking about when you profiled, I think Michael B. Jordan and there was a, There's a little section there about the movie Just Mercy, and there's a section about someone being strip searched in prison. And then you just have like a little paragraph that says, I know of what I speak when I talk about what it feels like to be strip searched. (laughs) And um, is that something that comes up naturally in the course when you sit down to write?
3: It's an objective that I always want to do work where I feel a stake in it, a personal connection. Um, that. Michael B. Jordan piece, ironically, is the thing that led to the Arbery piece because the guy who assigned that, Ryan D'Agostino, he read Survival Math and then he called or emailed me and he's like, I read this book, man. I really love your voice and I'd love to work with you. Can we have lunch? And we had lunch. I was late too. It was terrible. <laughs> and then uh, he's like, so what are you working on? I'm like, I'm working on this new novel. And he's like, you got some pitches? And I never have pitches. All right, man. I don't really have any pitches. He's like, "Well, what do you think about this and that?" And he mentioned Steph Curry. Like, what do you think about? It? I was like, "Well, I like Steph Curry." Nothing ever came of it. Then he shot me a couple other ideas, didn't work. And then finally, he says, "Hey, man, what do you think about writing about Michael B. Jordan for the Just Mercy film?" And I had I used to show um, Brian Stevenson's TED Talk in my class, mm-hmm. and I was like oh, this is something that I feel connected to, right? So I wasn't just writing about Michael B. Jordan being a movie star. At that point, it was like, oh, I got a stake in this. Then I watched the film, and I that moment in the film where the strip search happens, I'm like, oh, I can remember this. I didn't feel any more debased than when I was in prison being strip searched. It's just you, and it, it, I hadn't even thought about it for so long, but it just really caught up that. But the thing is, yes, Always, I'm trying to find the connection. Same thing, I, I did a story on Chris Rock, and we're sitting there talking about our daughters. And our daughters are roughly the same age. And I'm like, oh, here's, here it is. This is the thing that's linking us. Mm-hmm. So if I can't find that, it's like, why am I doing it? Because I write so slow, I'm not going to invest all this time into making a celebrity profile that no one really cares about unless you make them care about this thing.
2: And what does the, like, young Mitchell Jackson who is, let's say, stuck on his bunk, think about the Mitchell Jackson who's sitting with Michael B. Jordan or Chris Rock and trying to figure out how to do a story about them? Like, how, did, how do you reflect on that, that journey?
3: Man, that Mitchell Jackson sitting on his bunk could not have imagined that. Because all I knew at the time was Portland, Oregon. And I didn't even know, like people still, they come to Portland, they're like, oh, I was out hiking and I went to this river and I'm like, shit, where's that? Like, I I don't even know where that is. (laughs) Uh, So, so my, even my sense of Portland is really myopic. So to, to imagine, first of all, I wasn't reading magazines, you know, so, I mean, Maybe there was a... But I, especially in prison, I was I didn't have any... like I, I didn't have any subscriptions coming in. I wasn't reading anything, really. To imagine myself in New York... I mean, I had never been to New York. I had never been to the East Coast at that time. I didn't get on a plane until I was 19. So to imagine myself as a writer, to imagine that I would be living in New York, to imagine that I would be living in New York and somehow be writing for magazines, which... I never even conceived that, like, people were assigned stories. In my mind, the people at the magazine would have been the people writing the stories for the magazine. Like, why would you, why not? Um, So I didn't have any idea of a masthead or freelance. Like, all of this stuff is foreign. So even teaching, like, I could not have imagined myself being a professor. Just how? Like, I never even went to office hours. (laughs) like how I'm a professor uh yeah man so I'm I'm out beyond I didn't really have any big dreams other than I thought I was gonna get paid for playing basketball somewhere and once that was not a reality there was no more dream it was just okay I know I don't want to work maybe one day I'll get a job and I'll be making fifty thousand dollars a year and I'll be here so that was it
2: but there must have been up and you mentioned Gordon Lish and getting the voicemails, but like up until that point, and even with the voicemails, something was driving you to keep doing this. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't financially rewarding up till that those no. later points. <laughs> so,
3: <laughs> it, 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 we didn't hit the rewards for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think what it was is once I figured out what a writer was, right? So when I decided to write, start writing Residue, like it was like a project that I wanted to complete. I don't even know if I wanted to complete, it was a project I wanted to start. Then I figured out to complete that project, I actually had to learn how to write. But when I started to figure out that writing was something that I could be good at, possibly great, if I stuck to it, then it was like, well, who had, like how many people in their life have an opportunity to be great at something? So then it was like, okay, I'm dedicated. Like I, I, I uh, somebody just asked me to write about um, The Wire. And I was like, man, it's, it's sad. I didn't watch The Wire. But I didn't watch The Wire because I moved to New York in 2002, same year The Wire came out. And the thing that I told myself was, you were not a reader growing up. You can't have a TV. You just need to be reading and writing. So I didn't buy a TV for my first probably six to eight years in New York, hmm. which is all the wire time, right? So I, when everybody else is, t- like, I don't all them shows, Sopranos, why I was not watching them because I was trying to catch up with what I knew I had missed. You know, by the time I got to New York, like I had already been around other young people who wanted to be writers. I kinda had an I was starting to go to literary events. So like I was trying I was starting to figure out what a writer's life was. And me watching TV and listening to music was not gonna get me there. And it's also the thing that I'm kind of mo, it's like my biggest fear is also that I you know I haven't read enough. Like I don't know enough about craft. So I'm always really pushing on that. Cause I feel like I started so late, right? Like if I started, I started reading at probably 24, or 25. I didn't really start reading until I was 25 years old. So like think about all the people who like, well, I was in my room with a flashlight, you know, in the closet since I was 10, you know, I read all the children's books and that's not me. So now I got 25 years just to catch up to an adult reader who I'll never catch them. And so when we're talking about, like, what's the structure? I don't have a hundred books that I can go, well, what's the structure of that? Or what's the structure of that? So I always feel that, man. It's very acute, like this, you're not good enough. Uh, but then there's also this thing that goes, well, look at what you've done with less. So keep going.
2: Well, you you have just won the Pulitzer Prize uh, pretty recently. Yeah. And <laughs> I want to know what it was like and whether it's it's impacted your life in any kind of broader way beyond that day
3: (laughs) man uh funny thing is the Pulitzer check just came in the mail today (laughs) oh really (laughs) yeah literally wow you
2: think they could get it out the door they know who's gonna win they could just send them (laughs) the day they announce it
3: yeah i think they wanted to have a ceremony so i don't know we haven't got a date on the ceremony so hopefully they have one um to put the Pulitzer in context, I have to talk about the night before, because the night before was the National Magazine Awards. Yeah, and uh, it was a virtual ceremony, and I was there representing Runner's World. But and my award was last.
2: Yeah, they put that feature writing last.
3: Yeah, we're going through the whole thing, and you know, I'm like, if it don't happen, it's cool. It's, it's you know, it's all right. We're having a good time. So I got everybody up on my screen. it's like six people. And then they're announcing the the people in my category. Now, again, we're at the end of the night. I didn't have two, three glasses of wine. I'm like, if I don't win, I'm going to be feeling good anyway. And they put it up and, you know, some, some. And then Mitchell Jackson. And they were like, and the winner is Mitchell. And I was like, oh, my God. Uh, And then I got off the phone. I got Well, we, you know, we celebrated and, you know, all this stuff. Then when I finished the I think he's like the head of Hearst Communications, emailed me and he was like, Mitchell, congratulations on this award. He was like, I don't know how much you know about the uh, National Magazine Awards. He's like, but this is our Oscar. And I was like, well, because I didn't know about the National Magazine Awards before. Like I I knew about the year before because I had wrote a short story for The Washington Post. Then that won a special topics issue. So I was in that. And that was the first time. I had heard about the National Magazine Award, so like here I was, I was two for two. Uh, (laughs) so when he said that, it like it put it in context, so I'm like, let me celebrate this. But that is the night before the Pulitzer, the next day, the Pulitzer's happening. I'm like, I'm still trying to like keep my spirits high from the National Magazine Award. I'm like, let me enjoy this thing, and uh, I couldn't take the stress of it. I said, I am going to take a nap, and uh it was like about one o'clock or twelve fifty nine i'm'm take i'm gonna lay i take i lay down then my phone buzzes at like one oh two like and it's just strange because it's my friend who actually went to graduate school with me his name is tayemba Jess he won a Pulitzer for a book called the Oleo in 2015 i think so tayimba calls me. And I'm like, strange. Like he never, we text, but he never called. I was like, hey man, what's up? I'm thinking something like might be wrong. He was like, hey man, I just want to say congratulations. I said, Congratulations for what? He was like, Man, you just want to pull us, sir. I was like, get the fuck out of here, Ty. <laughs> he was like, nah, man, nah, you want to pull us. I'm I'm looking at it right here. I was like, this is crazy. I am like, uh, so he like, but I'm gonna let you go, man, so i hang up. But I don't believe him. I'm like, I don't know what he was watching. He could have messed something up, you know? Like, you know, you remember that year in the Oscars when they gave the uh, picture of the year? I'm like, I ain't going through that. So then I'm like, let me go online. Cause I figure if, if like, maybe Twitter is saying something. And went on Twitter. And sure enough, it was like, runners. I was like, oh shit. I just got up and started jumping up and down, man. Like, and I had won some stuff before, but. That was like this is crazy.
2: <laughs> so, has it has it in any way kind of enabled you to think about what your goals are in terms of you know being in the literary world?
3: Um, I think a lot about legacy, um, which is why I think I like my output is you know I don't write very much. Like I've I haven't published very many short stories. I only have I got two books. I'm working on another one. Cause I I think I want people to look back on this era of writers, fiction, nonfiction, and say he was one of the most important writers of his generation. And I I I think it came out of that thing with Gordon, right? Like I think you can be great, Mitch. Or what is you know? Well, what is great? Well, great isn't really sales, right? Like. No one cares what James Baldwin sold, so are you doing the important work, which is how I kind of judge what I'll take on as a freelancer. I think the thing about the Pulitzer is it it has taken pressure off of me in a sense that like, well, that's one thing I know is like, I could be 175 years old and they'll be like, well, in 2021, (laughs) he won this thing. I might not win nothing else and that's fine. Um so yeah so I think it takes it takes the pressure off of a little bit off a of legacy but then it also is like you don't want to be a fluke and you know it 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 opens doors you know like now I'm having different kind of hollywood conversations and I'm about to join another staff as a contributing writer so that stuff is cool um uh, I was blessed I was in negotiations to come to Arizona State when I won the Pulitzer. Actually, when I won the Pulitzer and the Guggenheim, I was still in negotiations. So uh, your negotiations go differently <laughs> <laughs> when you went to Guggenheim and the Pulitzer uh, a couple months apart. <laughs> so I'll say that.
2: Okay, last question then. I mean, you, you write fiction, you write nonfiction, you can go back and forth between them. Now you have... Hollywood conversations now you've got all probably may, way more people coming at you to do things, so how do you keep the focus on that work that you want to do given these the the new range of possibilities that are in front of you?
3: man, it's hard um I have to figure out a way to carve space for the thing that I want to do because yeah, and me, it's always like chasing my legacy, right? So my thing is like, can you write a novel of big scope? It's a challenge. And for the last week, I have made sure that I touch it every day. Two hours, three hours, like I'm going to do this. Also, I have been turning down those other, you know, like, do you want to write about Herschel Walker for GQ? No, (laughs) right? Because I want to write this novel, right? Because to me, it's like, well, what are people going to care about? Like, if I, are people really going to care if I write a great essay on Herschel Walker in GQ? Maybe. But I think for me, the next thing has to be a book. Um, unless I get to write like a really, really long piece somewhere where I spend some months working on it and I'm talking to people about what that can look like. But yeah, man, the impactful work, not the like... The other stuff. And hopefully if a Hollywood conversation comes in, I have more freedom to say no to Herschel Walker, who I used to love, by the way, until uh, <laughs> he started talking crazy last year.
2: <laughs> i just say for the record, I would like to read that Mitchell Jackson, Herschel Walker profile. But
3: <laughs> Man, they called me to write Dennis Rodman. I wanted to go write Dennis Rodman. The week that I went for the 833 story, they had called me to write a profile of Dennis Rodman. They were like, he's having a party at his house. <laughs> And I was like, ooh, that would be, can you imagine a party at Dennis Robbins' house? And my agent was like sober, and she was like, Mitch, you'll go to that party and catch COVID. I was like, you're right, Jen, I'm gonna go in here and go to Vegas with my homeboys. (laughs) Well, given all the constraints, I'm
2: really glad that you took this time. I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. I'll let you get back to that novel.
3: All right. Well, man, it was great talking to you, man.
2: That's it for this week's show. Thank you to Mitchell Jackson for making time for that. Thank you for listening. And I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. My other co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. The editor this week is Seth Kelly. Seth, good luck in the marathon this weekend. Our intern is Susan Peterson. Our sponsor is MailChimp. And we will be back next week.